Have you ever bought something that seemed too good to be true? Like, have you ever, have you ever purchased something and you're like, this is a deal? I remember the year was 1993. I had just gotten my first car. It was a 1984 Buick Skylark Maroon. I worked at a car wash, so I washed it every week, got those white walls on the tires looking so good, vacuumed it out, always had the freshest air freshener in it. It had everything a six-year-old, a 16-year-old could want, I guess, in a 1984 Buick Skylark, but it did not have a CD player, and that was when CD players were becoming a bit of a thing, and so my friends were getting CD players and their 1980s Thunderbirds and, and their Ford F-150s and, and other vehicles, and I thought, man, I've got to have a CD player in my 1984 Buick Skylark. And I should have seen the warning signs. Uh, Richie was going to become my CD uh, player salesman. I should have seen the, the warning signs in him. He had what we called a crustache. That was a teenager's mustache that wasn't very thick. Do you remember some of you guys might have had a crustache back in the day? It was one of those that you could let put uh, milk on the upper lip and the cat could lick the, the mustache off if needed to because it was so thin. Uh, he had that. He had the drizzle of chewing tobacco at times uh, coming down his cheek, and, uh, and you didn't want to stand too close because he might spit it. And he had a CD player to sell that was an unbelievable deal, like too good to be true. There were two problems. One, that CD player was not in the store, and two, Richie was no Best Buy employee. But it was an unbelievable deal, and I bought it. I totally ignored the signs. What seemed to be too good to be true was, in fact, too good to be true. And, uh, and these were, uh, here's the progression of how I knew something was not right. I mean, my Green Day CDs and uh, Melissa Etheridge CD sounded great in 1993 in that CD player. But if you touch that CD player after about a minute, that thing was boiling lava hot. Like it, and I knew something wasn't quite right. And I remember coming home one night after I'd been on a date with my girlfriend, and it was a 20-mile ride home between my house and her house, and this is the second sign, something is amiss. Uh, people are flashing their brights at me as they're coming up behind me, and they're honking at me, and I'm like, ooh, this is a little, there's something not right, I don't know what it is, I'm panicking, but people are coming up on me, and finally I pull up to a red light, and somebody is wanting me to uh, roll down the window. This person's been flashing lights at me and honking. I'm like, this guy's going to kill me. I'm about to die. Like there is a, a murderous gang following me from Macon to Warner Robins, Georgia, and I'm going to die. But begrudgingly, I rolled down my window. Uh, that was when you still rolled down your window, as you can see by my uh, miming here. And I rolled down my window and he says, you have no tail lights. You have no tail lights. So I'm riding home in the dark with no tail lights. So he's like, turn on your emergency flashers. So I put on my emergency flashers and I'm white knuckling it to the house. That CD player had something wrong in it and, uh, and basically it crashed every circuit and a little circuit board in the, in the glove box. And so it took out my tail lights. So uh, it went from I had this unbelievable deal to I had a CD player that would get boiling lava hot to I had no tail lights to I nearly died on the way home from my girlfriend's house, almost losing my life so that I could listen to the first Green Day album. 
Uh, here's how the story sort of ended. I ended up losing my money on the CD player. Uh, uh, had, there had to be money spent to get a new CD player. I had to spend money to get new circuits in the car, a whole new sort of like circuit box. And, uh, and this unbelievable deal ended up costing me more than if I would have just gone to Best Buy, bought one on the shelf, and then had it professionally installed. And it seems like the world works in two ways for the most part. One way that the world works is that something will like, be too good to be true. And typically, in my experience, if it seems too good to be true, it usually is. Like, have you ever bought something that, man, this seems too good to be true, and it usually is? Maybe, uh, maybe it's a purchase you make. Maybe, um, you know, we, uh, we've had things in our homes that seem too good to be true that turned out to be too good to be true. We've bought equipment that seemed too good to be true that was too good to be true. Uh, maybe you had roommates at some point in your journey who seem too good to be true, and then you figure out why that person is too good to be true. Maybe it's people you work with. Usually, it seems like in our life, if something seems to be too good to be true, it usually is. And the other thing that we can do to prevent that, and like because I get the nervous twitches when I think about being 16 with that CD player, the other thing we do is we just pay full price for something, and we get what we pay for. We know what we're buying. We get what we pay for. And it just feels safer. Like, I would rather pay, I would almost, the CD player thing so wrecked me that I would almost rather pay 20% more than what it's going for because somehow that makes me feel safe. I'm like, oh, it costs more. It must just, it must be better. Uh, so those kind of become two worldviews and ways that we see the world. Now, my wife is nothing like this, by the way. She is uh, essentially like a Charlestown, almost a dumpster diver. Like on uh, trash day, she's going around looking for furniture by the side of the road. And man, we've got like furniture in our house. That's something that she found on Craigslist or whatever, and I'm, because of the CD player, I'm scared to death to do that. Like, I'm like, there's going to be a rodent in that chair, or there's anthrax on that coffee table that you found by the side of the road, and we're all going to die or get some disease or something like that. And we embody these two worldviews. Like, on the one side is me who wants to pay full price and get what I pay for and know what I'm getting, and on the other side is her trusting goodness pure-hearted, believing that there's still stuff in life that actually is too good to be true. And in fact, it is too good to be true. It's rare in life that we get more than we sign up for and something we don't deserve. It just doesn't happen anymore. If when I'm walking through Boston, if somebody comes up to me and starts wanting to talk to me, I don't make eye contact with them. I don't know if you're like this. This is my cynicism because I feel like they always have an angle and they always want something from me. And they're trying to work me because it's so rare in life that we get uh, more than we sign up for and something we don't deserve. And it makes us uncomfortable when that happens, by the way. I don't know if you feel this way. It tends to make us uncomfortable when we start to get uh, more. Like uh, we feel like we have to pay people back. Or if you invite me to your house, now I have to invite you to my house. Or uh, maybe you've even had this happen. I've actually had this happen to me. I got a thank you card in response to a thank you card I sent someone. It was like, man, thank you for that thank you card. Like that felt, it's like we have to balance the scales in our relationships so that everything equals out because God forbid that we owe someone and the scales begin to get even. And so I see this in Boston, this idea of reciprocity and keeping the scales in my favor, at least keeping the scales even. But what about with God? 
Did God set up the universe to work in a certain way? Did God set up a too good to be true system? Or did God set up a system where we have to pay the full price spiritually and work for his approval and get what we deserve or have coming to us? Which one is it? Like, how did God set up the world and, uh, and how are we supposed to view? And which one would you prefer? Like, would you prefer the worldview where God does, gives you something that's too good to be true? Or would you prefer the worldview where, uh, like, we have to even the scales with God and do, more, um, and do more good and less bad? Because most people I meet in Boston want this system. Most people, I want to pray and go to church and do good and help old ladies across the street and rescue kittens from tree limbs and all of these things. Like This feels like it's within our control, and in a very uncertain, ever-changing world, this is the religious system that most people tend to want, in my experience here in Boston. These are two worldviews. These are two theologies. Like The word theology just means God words, ways of talking about God, and these are at the core of the two basic worldviews or theologies in the world. And one of those is the idea of grace, which is a uniquely Christian idea. This idea that God gives us something that seems too good to be true, that we cannot earn, is the idea of grace. And, uh, and that's what Bono's singing about in that song. He talks about in interviews. That is a uniquely Christian idea. That's an idea that is in no other real religious system in the world. And the other one is a, has roots in Hinduism, but has sort of been absorbed into pop culture. And it's the idea of karma that uh, I'm going to do good. And if my good outweighs my bad, then I'm okay with God. And God's sort of this um, eternal like butcher who's kind of weighing the meat of our morality in the butcher shop of life. And he's going to figure it all out. And, um, and on this subject, the Bible has so much to say. And on this subject, uh, Bono has a lot to say. The words grace, if you've got a Bible, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 uh, this morning. If you want to start turning there, and I apologize for not getting the page if you grab one of those paper Bibles in the back. Let me just say, just sort of as an aside, if you're reading the Bible, what's that? Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get there in a minute. Um, in the New Testament, when you see this idea of grace, it's just the word grace. Uh, in the Old Testament, if you ever see the, the phrase covenant love or everlasting love, that's the same idea of grace. So really from Genesis, you hear about covenant love all the way to Revelation. We hear this idea of grace. Let me define the terms really quickly while you're looking for Ephesians 2. Now, karma, according to uh, an article on Vedanta, Hinduism, and Reincarnation by Norman Geisler, uh, is this. It says, one's life is determined by the law of karma or action. This is the moral law of the universe. Karma is the moral law of cause and effect. It's absolutely binding and allows no exceptions. Karma says that every decision made by an individual in the present is caused by all prior decisions in past lives and will in turn affect every future decision. Concerning the law of karma and the cycle of samsara, it is on the earth that man determines his spiritual destiny and achieves his final realization. Salvation is solely a personal effort. Higher states of existence offer rewards of happiness and lower states are punishments that each person earns on his own. It's the idea of what goes around comes around. 
That's the sort of cultural idea of karma. And there's this, uh, the scales is the other part of karma that we hear in talking with our pop culture religious friends in this city. It's, man, I've got to do good, and I've got to do bad. One Friday night, we were with some friends, and, and we were at a place, and our friend was just cleaning up everything. And I was like, you've had a long week of work. Why are you picking up trash? And uh, he was like, man, I'm just always trying to do good. I was like, why? He was like, because, you know, like, you got to do more good than bad, JD. Like, one day we're going to die, and I got to make sure my good outweighs my bad. And I was like, really? Like, what defines good and bad? He was like, I don't know. I do. Like, picking up trash on a Friday night. I was like, no kidding. I was like, how much good do you have to do? And he said, I'm not sure. I just keep doing it. I just keep doing it. And I was like, man, what do you think, like, happens on the other side, like, when you breathe your last? He goes, I don't know, but I've got to keep being good to try to set the scales. And I thought, man, that's tiring. I'm tired watching you pick up trash on a Friday night. Like, I'm tired. Like, I just thought I was coming to watch my kids play some carnival games. And you are exhausting yourself not to be a good citizen or to help out, but because you feel like picking up blow pop wrappers is somehow going to be the thing that gets you into heaven one day and keeps you out of hell. It's this idea of karma and the moral law of the universe, my good outweighing my bad. Now, the idea of grace, this comes from the evangelical uh, dictionary of theology, which is uh, a book about this thick that really defines the terms really well of what we embrace as, as followers of Jesus says this, grace is the undeserved blessing freely bestowed on humans by God. It's a concept at the heart, not only of Christian theology, but also of all genuinely Christian experience. And there are two kinds of grace. One is common grace, which is common to all humans um, and happens because God is good, whether we're Christian or not. Examples of that would be like the rain. It doesn't just rain on Christians' yards and become drought on non-Christians' yards. That's common grace. It's God causes the rain to fall on the evil and the good. The sun shines on the evil and the good. Good things in life come to evil and good people because God is good. There's a a universal sense that there is a right and there is a wrong in every single person that God has made. That's common grace, giving God giving us a conscience and a soul, telling us that some things are just wrong. Common grace. It's not just for God's people. Now, there's a second type of grace. It's special grace or saving grace. And that is what it means to be Christian. It's that God has... Um, that God redeems and changes people who believe in him through faith in Jesus and live for him by faith in Jesus. This is only for Christians. Now, here's going to be an offensive line. Christians can refer to God as their father. He is our spiritual father. People who are not Christians can certainly refer to God is their creator, and they can even identify him on some level as a sort of maker father, but not as their spiritual father, because it is only by saving grace that we become part of God's family, and that only happens by grace through faith in Jesus, as we're going to see here. So my youth pastor, if you write anything down today, this would maybe be the one line that's worth writing down. My youth pastor used to define grace this way. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God withholding nothing good from us 
because Jesus paid the full price for it. So let's read Ephesians 2. We're going to read the first 10 verses of that this morning. Paul's writing to uh, the church at Ephesus, and, and basically every community would just have one group of Christians, and they would be called the church in that town. And they might meet in different places, but they were the church of the city, so you didn't get a bunch of denominations and, and stuff like that. They were one church, and he's writing a letter, and they would pass it around from, the meeting, from meeting place to meeting place. And so he says this uh, to them, Now you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, if you like to underline your Bible, that's worth underlining. If you like to highlight on your phone Bible, that is worth highlighting. Uh, That's the best phrase in the Bible, but God. But God, you'll see that phrase several times. That is the best. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses or sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him and the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I want to walk through really quickly this morning, verse by verse, and and talk about some of these. The first, some of these key words, the first one's dead, that we were dead. It's not that Christianity, in Christianity, in Christ, and in Jesus' death on the cross, it's not that God takes bad people and makes us good, or that he takes irreligious people and makes us religious, but he takes dead people and makes us alive. And why are we dead? Because genetically, I get a lot of things. Like uh, somehow Owen ended up with blue eyes. Now Natalie has blue eyes, but uh, there's a recessive blue eye gene trait in my family that my grandmother had. She had the most incredible eyes. If she wore a blue shirt, her eyes were blue. If she wore a green shirt, her eyes were green. It's incredible. And the only way that Owen has these blue eyes, because there's somewhere in our genetic, li- our genetic line, a blue-eyed person on my side and a blue-eyed dominant gene on Natalie's side, so Owen gets the most beautiful blue eyes you've ever seen. Noah has hazel eyes. They're, everybody in Natalie's family has blue eyes. Like, they're from Kentucky. It matches the grass. Uh, somewhere there's a recessive hazel eye trait in, in Natalie's side, and my granddad had a hazel eye. So Noah ends up with these hazel eyes because in our genetics, there's all these things. My dad, till the day he died, would crack up laughing that he had a grandson with blonde hair. He was like, I never thought I'd see it. I mean, we have black hair in our family. It made no sense to him that he could have a blonde-haired uh, grandson. And spiritually, we genetically inherit sin. 
Because the very first father, Adam, was a sinner with his wife, Eve, who was a sinner. And their children were sinners. Literally, one of their sons murdered uh, his brother. And all the way down the line, I was meeting with Renee this week, and we were talking about just how screwed up the people in Genesis are. And, and, and this is in our DNA. It's in the furthest little strands back of our DNA. And then it comes all the way down. I found out two weeks ago that my dad had a half-brother that he never knew about in life. He had a brother and a sister he never knew about. Turns out that I have, I don't know what that makes us. I think it makes us cousins. I have cousins I never knew existed because my dad never knew his dad. My dad's dad struggled with alcoholism, anger, abuse, adultery, and abandonment. It's like the five evil A's of our family tree. So my dad struggled with that. See, there's sin in his DNA line, and I get that sin. I inherit that. Nobody had to teach me how to be bad. Sin was inherent to me. We get that. We're born with it. But also we choose sin. Like our sin is chosen. It's personal. I choose to do wrong. I get angry in traffic. I get frustrated with my kids. I have small faith. I don't get up and read God's word sometime, but would rather play on my phone and waste time on social media than spending time in God's word. That's my choice. It's not my dad's fault or his dad's fault or Adam and Eve's fault. That's my sin. We're dead in our sin. And, we, we, and you compound it by the fact that we sin and we're sinned against. And then you compound it even more by the fact that we commit sins and then we omit to do good things. And so at the end of this thing, we just end up like, it's not that we're bad people, we're dead in our sin theologically. We couldn't resuscitate, resuscitate ourselves from that. That's a, that's a death blow, and we're born that way. And at the end, we're so sinful that the Bible declares us um, dead in sin. So it's not that, um, it, it's that we're qualitatively bad, not quantitatively bad. It's not that I have a thousand bad deeds and you have 900 bad deeds or sins. It's that we are born sinners. And the Bible, because of that, declares us to be corpse-like in our sin. And so in verse 2, Paul, because he's talking to the church, he says, and this is how you once walked. You used to walk like this. It's like you're the walking dead. It's like you're a bunch of, we're a bunch of spiritual zombies just walking around in our sin before Jesus. And it's like, uh, he says, when you were not yet Christ followers, you did three things. And this is extremely offensive, okay? This is going to offend our religious sensibility. He says, one, you followed Satan. Before you became a Christian, you followed Satan. Now, I don't like to think of myself as a Satan worshiper. Uh, that seems like a special type of uh, person on planet Earth. But he says to this church of good people, before you followed Jesus, you followed the prince of the air. You were following Satan, the devil who is real. And then he says, not only that, he goes on and he says, uh, you lived by the flesh or by the self and your mind and body. You did what you wanted to. I see that in my kids. I see that in me. I look at times in my life where I just do what I want. It's that old man, that old dead man trying to rear his head, reminding me of who I was before Jesus. And then he goes on, he says one more thing. He says, you were under God's wrath. So before Mark came to follow Jesus just a few years ago, when God would look at Mark, he would say, guilty. The verdict is guilty. Mark's a good guy, but because he inherited sin and chose sin, he did some wrong things and he didn't do some right things. The verdict is guilty and it's on every one of us uh, who are born 
unless Jesus steps in and intercedes. And that's why verse 4 is so good. But God being rich in mercy. But God is the most hopeful phrase in the Bible. But God. Because of his mercy and love, not our goodness, we were dead, made us alive with Christ or made us alive in Christ by grace. This idea of God giving me what I can never deserve uh, or never earn by grace, I get a few things. Verse six, I get new life. I get new life. How many of you, when you became a Christian, you were as what is commonly referred to in New England, as I've heard you refer to it this way, as being born again? Like I've been, uh, New Englanders, like they don't have, in the South, everybody has all these terminologies for religious people and everybody uses the same words. It's fun living here and learning new terminologies. Like they'll be, oh, he's a born again. That was my brother-in-law. He used to curse at the Christmas table and now he's praying a long prayer at the Christmas table and I don't understand what he's doing, but you know, it's because he became one of those born agains. Like uh, it's a noun and not a verb or an adjective. Uh, because, um, because of Jesus, we have been given new life. We have been born again. And this is fundamental to what it means to follow Jesus. Like we need to be born again. Not that we pick up some new church habits or slough off some old immorality habits. We need to be born again in Jesus, which is undeserved. We get a seat at the table with Jesus, it says in verse 6. I remember the first time I got to sit at the adult table at Thanksgiving dinner. Has anybody, has everybody graduated to the adult table? Before that, it's a card table, right? It's just a card table on the back porch. Like, you're just praying you don't freeze to death. It's a card table. Uh, the adults have the nice tablecloth. The kids get like a piece of plastic. Uh, the adults get the nice china. The, the kids get the paper plates and the, the plastic silverware. And they basically, they would close the door on us on the back patio at our house and we could be as loud as we want. And it was just, it was total chaos and, you know, a lot of bodily function humor and all of those things. Uh, it, was just, it was just bad. And the adults are having this proper conversation with their, you know, fine china and, 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 you know, real food and like the white meat because only the adults got the white meat in, in, uh, in our family. And, um, and so the adults are having this proper dinner. Listen, in Jesus, we get a seat at the table. The gospel being born again gives us a seat at the table with God where God is at the head of the table and Jesus is the honored guest. The gospel does that. That's what happens. God allows us. He gives us new life. He lets us come sit at the table with him. And then we are shown undeserved kindness by God. Kindness we never deserve. If somebody hurt my kids, like really, really hurt my kids, I've thought about this before. Like I found ourselves in a situation where they weren't as safe as they should be. And I thought to myself, boy, if somebody hurt my kids, what would I do to them? You know, and I can't tell you like the violent things that have come through my head about what I would do if somebody ever did that to my children. Um, and God loves us that way when we're part of his family and he would fight for us and he has laid down his life to make us part of his family. And, uh, and man, that's more than karma and that is more than religion. That is God giving us something that we can never earn. So verse eight uh, is one of the best verses in the Bible. And if you're ever sharing the gospel with someone from New England, like I would highly recommend that this be one of your go-to verses to talk about what it means to be a Christian. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one can boast. Grace through faith. Faith in who? Jesus. Faith in what? His death. The cross, which offers forgiveness. In a moment, we're going to receive communion. When we receive communion, we're remembering his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, undeserved, undeserved grace uh, through faith in his death and in his resurrection, which when we have baptism, I was talking with a friend the other night. I pray she doesn't listen to this podcast. If she does, I just want you to know I love you and I'm uh, using this as the best possible example. Um, she told me, she said, hey, I got a question for you. I didn't like your baptistry. Why'd you use that ugly baptistry at your uh, baptism? I was like, well, what do you mean? She said, why don't you just throw water at people's heads? I was like, well, that's not what we do. Like, that's what makes us a little different here. And she said, well, I didn't like that. You should have at least painted some crosses on that baptistry. I was like, you're welcome to come paint crosses on it. I think that's a great idea. I love that. I was like, but we put people under the water to remind them, to show a picture of it, they have died to themselves and we pull them out to remind them that they've been born again into new life because of the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus' death and resurrection for us aren't just symbolic or important. They are where we get our life as Christians. And this, and, and this, is, a, this is a gift of God. It's received, it's not earned in any way. We were getting in the car the other day uh, I had been talking with uh, a friend of ours, Lisa, and um, we're getting in the car. And I, I'd been sharing the gospel a little bit with this guy. And, um, and I was telling that. And, and Natalie says this. She goes, I bet these people in Charlestown think we're completely nuts. And I was like, oh, there's no doubt. But why do you think they think we're completely nuts? She said, because they be- most people in Boston believe that your good has to outweigh your bad. You have to do a lot of good and a lot less bad, and it works out. And she's like, and you and I are telling them that they are not good, but God offers us a gift that we receive by faith, and we don't do anything for because God did it all. She's like, that has got to be crazy talk to these people. And I was like, you're right. You're right. But that's a gift. You don't earn a gift. A gift is a gift. We bought Noah an Xbox uh, a, a year or two ago. I can't remember. I think it was a year ago. And, uh, and for like a few days, he's like coming up and hugging us. And Noah is not touchy-feely. Noah is like a cat. Owen is like a golden retriever. And so when Noah comes up and hugs us, that's his way of like paying us for buying him that Xbox, right? And he's like doing chores and all this. And finally, we looked at him. And we we're like, Noah, you don't have to do anything. We gave you that because we love you. You didn't earn it. We just love you and we want you to have fun. Go have fun. Play. Quit hugging us. It's freaking us out to see you <laughs> hugging us right now. Like, if you ever see Noah hug Natalie or I, like, you know he's either broken something or he wants something. Like, those are the only two, uh, the only two things that are going on. And it's a gift. It's offered to us. But the taking it is up to us. And it's hard for us because we like the system where we earn things. I love this quote. Grace is God's part. Faith is our part. Grace is God saying, I'll give you what you can never earn or, and do not deserve. Faith is us saying, I surrender the right to earn this at all. And I'll just take the gift. That's faith. Not a result of works. Verse 9. Again, salvation cannot be earned, attained, or added to. Or let me encourage you, taken away from. 
If you've grown up here in New England, I really believe that this idea of karma is rooted into our system of trying to earn and reciprocate. And I want to encourage you that if you are a Christian, if you have become part of God's family, the Bible says that he holds you in the palm of his hand and nothing can ever snatch you from that. You can't add anything to that salvation and you can never take anything away from it. You can't add to it or take from it. You're part of his family. He holds you in love and will never let you go. Don't feel what my friend Jillian calls Irish guilt of telling you that you have to do more and stop and do less bad and more good all the time. That is a hamster wheel that God never intended for you to get up and start running on. It's a gift. It's a gift, not a result of works. It's a gift. The Bible says, so that no one can boast. The truth is, God wants to work in you. That's salvation. God wants to work for you. Uh, the, The biblical sort of word for that is justification. It's God legally declaring us righteous, not guilty. Uh, It's in the song when Bono says, grace takes the blame, covers the shame, removes the stain. That's the idea of justification. God doing for us legally uh, through Jesus what we could never do for ourselves. So in the courtroom of eternity, when God... uh, When Satan comes and says, Carla's guilty, 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 and God says, actually, she is guilty, Jesus stands up and says, no, I took the guilty verdict, and God looks at Carla and says, oh, well, she is not guilty legally. She's she's clear. That's justification. Uh, Grace uh, uh, is God working on us, which is sanctification, God making us holy. That's Bono saying he makes, grace makes beauty out of ugly things. And then God wants to work through us by grace, which is mission and us becoming messengers of grace. So karma says man determines his spiritual destiny. Grace says man is separated from God because of sin and unable on his own to do anything about it. Karma says salvation is personal effort. Grace says salvation is accomplished by Jesus on the cross and is available to all who receive it by faith. Karma is salvation uh, in, in karma, salvation is about justice. In grace, salvation is about mercy. In karma, at best, Jesus is an inspiration for us to help us do more good and less bad. In grace, Jesus is our only hope in this life and in eternity. The problem with karma is we have to ask, how bad is bad enough? How good is good enough? And how much do I have to do before I can finally sleep at night and not have an ulcer? The problem with grace is it insults our pride. It insults our pride. And it insults our self-righteous effort to justify ourselves before God. And it demands us to turn, which is what the Bible calls repentance, and believe in faith and know that's all we can do. That's all we bring to the table. We receive it by faith. Karma says do, do, do. Grace says done, done, done. Nothing you can add to it or take away from it. Karma and grace. Let me encourage you because when we become Christians, there's some stuff that just goes away immediately. And there's some stuff that's a fight. And, and this idea of karma is deeply rooted into a lot of us. So let me just say something very authoritatively today as, uh, as your pastor, if you'll let me pastor you. Karma and grace are two totally different worldviews and two totally different ways of seeing God. Grace travels outside of karma. 
as the song says. A Christian cannot and should not want to embrace the theology of karma and one of grace. The two are incompatible, and actually they're in total conflict with each other. We have to choose. Do I want a system uh, of belief where I, measure, uh, where I seek to measure up to God's standard by my own goodness, or do I, want, do I understand my own lack of goodness and reach out for something more? Most people operate by karma. Most people operate by karma. If you're hanging on to a grace plus karma theology, like I'm going to think I'm going to trust in this grace thing, but I'm going to hang on to a little karma just in case at the end, like I get to God and he's like, well, what did you really do, James? Like, listen, repent of karma. It will only wear you out. You can't add anything to it. And you were never, ever expected to. Most people operate by karma. Christ followers get to be ambassadors of grace and how we treat others and ourselves and how we interpret the world and share good news. I love verse 10. It's one of the best verses in the Bible. We are God's workmanship, his poem, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not that we have to go do for God. God literally prepared you to do certain things that now he wants to do in and through you. And, uh, and, and Bono is like a great example of this. I've, I've been reading these books about his story. And he has shared the message of grace with Bruce Springsteen. If you listen to Springsteen's last uh, albums over the last 15, 20 years, they're much more spiritual. And a lot of that has happened because of some conversations those two men had at their rock and roll Hall of Fame induction. It's a pretty cool story. Uh, Noel Gallagher, the lead singer of the band Oasis, has softened up spiritually because of Bono's influence in his life. Bono met with W and with Tony Blair after 9-11 and in the wake of trying to relieve third world debt and got to share the message of grace unequivocally with those uh, world leaders. And then... Um, and then he shared the message of grace with people in war-torn and poverty-stricken countries across the world. But this is my favorite interaction of his as it concerns the topic of grace. It's an interview with a, this atheist um, French journalist who's a dear friend of, of the band's uh, named Mishka Sias. And, and, and he's talking with him about Bono's sort of faith. And Bono says this, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. And then the guy says, I haven't heard you talk about that. Bono says, I really believe we've moved out of the realm of karma and into one of grace. And he goes, well, that doesn't make it clearer for me. He says, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know that uh, what you put out comes back to you, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or in physics and physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that you, as you reap, so you sow stuff. God defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your action, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a a lot of stupid stuff and the interviewer tries to change the subject and says I'd be interested to hear that and Bono says well that's between me and God and I love this he says I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge I'd be in deep um, shexpletive and we'll leave it at that it doesn't excuse my mistakes but I'm holding out for grace I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity well, that's good. Like, that's so good. Here's a final question. 
Is grace described in the Bible like my cheap CD player that was too good to be true, or is it something else? Uh, like that song says, the Bible says, Jesus says, the, the gospel is like a pearl in perfect condition that a man finds in a field, and when he, in his field, and when he finds it in the field, he goes and he sells every, or, or not his field, he finds it in the field, and when he finds it, he goes and sells everything he owns just to buy the field so he can get the pearl. Because the pearl is worth more than everything that he had earned or accumulated to that point. That is the gospel of grace uh, for which a man sells everything to go and own the one thing that's of limitless value. It's free, but it's not cheap. Cost Jesus everything. Cost him everything. Um, my mom paid for the repairs on my car, by the way. My mom paid for a new CD player. My mom paid for a new circuit box. My mom paid to have it all taken care of. Because at the end of the day, I blew through everything trying to get something that I thought was going to be too good to be true. And it turned out it was. But my mom, in an act of grace, paying for the sins of foolishness that she did not commit, did for me what I could not have done for myself. That is being God's workmanship, by the way. That's what God has called us to be in Christ, is ambassadors of grace. When people find themselves in the mire of being stuck in what seems too good to be true or even trying to work for what they can never earn, God uh, would have us be ambassadors of grace. So let me ask you three questions. One, do you need to, um, do you need to receive grace today and be born again? I rarely talk in those terms, like, but that is the crux of this. It is not that we need to go to church more or be better people. That is just Christianizing karma. We need to be born again and receive the gift of grace from God. Second question, do you need to believe grace and stop living a mixed theology of grace and karma? Do you need to let go of the self-inflicted, self-righteous pressure to add to what God has already said is enough? At the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. This is done. I've paid for all of it. You don't have to add anything to this. If there's anything in you that's hanging on to both, can I encourage you today that God wants to set you free and let you just cling to the one? Third question, do you need to become an agent of grace and good news to other people in your life? Who needs to hear the good news? Who needs to see the good news in your life? Every Sunday, uh, we get up at we get up at seven and um, or a little earlier. Natalie always sleeps a little late, like a little later because the kids inevitably wake her up every single night. Um, but she gets up at seven every Sunday morning and. She'll make, you know, the coffee, and this morning she's like, I'm going to make a breakfast casserole, and it's amazing back there, and I love my wife. And she, uh, sometimes she'll go to Wegmans because I'm like, babe, don't put all this pressure on yourself. Let people help you, and uh, just buy bagels sometimes. not that big a deal, but, man, sometimes she'll just get up, and it's like the way that God's love has poured into her, the way it flows out is by, like, hosting people and cooking for people and doing for people. And, uh, man, when I eat that, I can, like, taste the grace of Jesus flowing through my wife because I know the love with which she makes it. And, and you don't want me cooking you anything. Like, 
you don't want me making you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like it, it would, it would have too much peanut butter or too much jelly. Like you don't want it. Like, but there are other ways that God would use me to bless you and be an agent of grace. And there are things that God has gifted you to do to be an agent of messenger of grace in other people's lives, to be ambassadors for Christ, goodwill agents, delivering this message that you don't have to add up the scales. Do you need to receive grace and be born again? Do you need to let go of a theology of karma that you're hanging on to? And do you, are there people into whose lives God wants you to be uh, a messenger of grace? Let me pray for us.